Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Join Justin Townsend and the Harvesting Nature crew as they explore the world of cooking wild fish and game while sharing recipes, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from their pursuit of wild food. We sure hope you ate before the show, because you're going to leave hungry. This is the Wild Fish and Game Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Harvesting Nature's Wild Fishing Game Podcast. You got your host here, Justin Townsend, and uh, we've got some very special guests on today, and I'm I'm eager to introduce them and then get into uh, the fat of the episode, I guess if we want to call it, um, and really get into what we're going to talk about. But first, we're going to get the you know the usual news and stuff out of the way. So, uh, quick updates for me so spent some time down here in the florida keys in the back country doing a little bit of fishing um really quite an adventure turned into a long day on the water uh not really super sunburned but just really beat at the end of the day that was a uh, monday and i'm still feeling the effects two days later but nonetheless we had a blast uh got a lot of cool footage that we're gonna be putting together uh for our adventures for food series film series which will be over on youtube and then um, also some good talking points for our Adventures for Food podcast, which, uh, which Corey, are you prepared to chat a little bit about what's going on in the world of the Adventures for Food podcast? Yeah, we still are uh, recording episodes um, and trying to release every other week, although I think we skipped a week here this past weekend. I did realize that. That's okay. We'll get one out. The uh, this weekend, it's a good one. It's a good one. So by the time everybody listens to this, they'll have already heard it. Perfect. Um, well, while we've got you already talking and people know you're here, uh, any updates for us? Uh, ice fishing has been slow. Gone out a few times and 
not the bite has been very good and anything we catch has been pretty small so a little disappointed but it's, it's still fun to get 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 out on the ice and we got we got good ice too it's like foot thick i feel like the entirety of the country could be ice fishing this week based on like all the temperatures i saw yeah i think what florida is the only one that's has normal temperatures relatively yeah. normal temperatures although mm-hmm. Teens are pretty normal this time of year for us. Ooh. Yeah, I was talking with some friends in Dallas, and they're in the they're in like the twenties or the teens, which is really unusual. It snowed in Austin, it snowed in Houston, New Orleans too. All very unusual places for it to snow uh, inches. Um, so pretty crazy. But um, let's see what else we got. Uh, hat giveaway. So we've been doing uh, reviews. Uh, giving away hats for reviews. So if you leave five star review and and go and leave some written text for us, we'll we'll give you the opportunity to win a hat. So if we choose your review and read it on the air, then uh, we'll, we'll give you a shout out. So we'll go ahead and whatever podcast platform you're listening on, or down in the show notes, there's a little button you can click that automatically lets you do that. Uh, also, too, if you if you dig what we're doing, uh, we have a program set up where you can buy us a cup of coffee. Uh, we actually got our first cup of coffee here last week, three cups in a row. Somebody really liked what we were doing. And uh, so uh, that was pretty neat uh, to kind of help push us through and, and help fund all the cool activities and things we do. Just a way to say thanks uh, to us. But outside of that, we've got some great recipes that we've been publishing on, on Harvest in Nature this week. And, um, Let's see. We've got first up some barbecued squirrel. So I'm just going to go through them real quick. Uh, barbecue squirrel by field staff writer John Vile. Uh, real great. Super simple recipe. Straightforward. Corey, anything on barbecue squirrel? I know you're a big squirrel fan. Yeah, and I'll have to try this one. I think John's a PA guy too. So this this time of year, pretty much the only thing open for hunting seasons is squirrel and rabbit so that's what you got to do I'm, I'm gonna give it away but wade and rachel feel feel free to jump in and toss any thumbs up or thumbs down or any comments as as we uh talk about these recipes i think it, it's pretty good i definitely like uh a lot of the approach just very straightforward just barbecue rub uh some seasonings and on the grill so good thing to do with some squirrel for sure this one I think is probably one of my favorites for the week, though. The next one, the 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 wild duck uh, bow buns. I'm uh, pretty excited about that. I personally have been looking for a good uh, bun recipe for a while and have been searching. So I think Trevor did a good job on his interpretation of this dish. It's cool to see. I like to also see people doing different stuff with duck, too. You know, I love a good roast duck, good smoked duck see your duck breasts and all that, but uh, definitely putting on the, the creative hat and trying something different. So that's pretty good. And as always, all the recipes and all the little notes we talk about, uh, we put down in the show notes in the link section. So when you listen to this podcast, just scroll down a little bit and you can click and you can get the recipes so you can cook them yourself too. And then I'll hit on the others. Alligator curry by Chase. Uh, just real quick, love alligator. I actually made an alligator paella here last week which was super stoked uh to make and eat it was delicious so i can imagine that curry is really good too 
Um, pretty excited about that. And then uh, AJ's Lone Star Jerky. Can't go wrong with the Lone Star. I'm a huge fan. Every time I'm in, I'm in Texas, I try to pick up a six pack and bring home. It's like a a good a good working beer. So, but he uses it in his marinade, uh, which is pretty good. A one steak sauce in there, some soy sauce, brown sugar into the dehydrator. Just a lot of cool flavors. Uh, I think if you like a good re- jerky recipe, you'll appreciate this little variation. Uh, you could also sub out PBR too, and I was pretty stoked whenever we uh, we shared this uh, recipe over on Instagram. PBR actually gave us the little thumbs up, uh, so they were pretty stoked. Um, well, I think that's all ad- admin wise, information wise. That's kind of it, uh, it for me because I'm I want to get into uh, Facebook community group. We got we got to plug that on Facebook. Oh, go go ahead, hit on it. Well, we have our own uh, community group on Facebook, so any members that are in that can see uh, like sneak peek or insider look at a co- upcoming recipes, projects, articles, etc. Share your thoughts, converse with us, other members. Yeah. Also, toss around cooking ideas, whatever. Share your your victories, your failures, your triumphs, whatever you want to talk about. Just kind of a big place for everybody to get together and talk about wild food. And uh, learn about what's going on in the Harvest Nature world other than like the common Facebook page. So a lot more interaction going on there. I think I post in there pretty regularly. Corey does as well. Uh, there's probably five or six others um, who are not directly related to Harvest Nature that do as well. So pretty cool stuff. But with that said, I'm going to introduce our guest. So our guests today are hunters, anglers, foragers, and cooks. They've been featured in New York Times, Garden and Gun, also fellow meat eater writers, and uh, they've also been in other national and regional publications. They have their own website, with you, which you may have uh, looked at, Elevated Wild. It's a great, beautiful website. I really like it. Uh, you can see all their wild game recipes, their adventures, thoughts, stuff like that. Uh, I'll introduce you to... Wade Throng and Rachel Owen. Welcome to the Wild Fishing Game Podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Cool. Well, I, I'm really excited. Like I was telling you guys before, I've been been working very diligently to to get you guys on the calendar uh, to talk about our wild fats conversation today. But before we get into that, if you guys could tell me, tell not not me, tell us. A group collectively and the listeners sort of about yourself uh what got you into hunting and, and fishing and cooking and, and where that crossroads all happened please wait are you gonna take this one uh sure um so we both uh got into hunting about i guess about 10 years ago um maybe just a touch under that uh we didn't neither one of us grew up in a traditional hunting background you know, I didn't know anybody that hunted really, but, uh, we both worked in the restaurant industry and we, uh, we had a deep passion for food and cooking and, you know, getting into hunting was, just seemed to make sense, you know, like to get closer to the food that we were consuming and, uh, just get as hands on as possible. And it's, you know, grown from that to just being like an all encompassing lifestyle now. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, I didn't grow up in a household where hunting was, it was never something I was exposed to. And, uh, you know, I also kind of came up in the restaurant world and I remember meeting Wade and, you know, he had just gotten into hunting and uh, just thinking, you know, meeting him and thinking, oh, that's really interesting. You know, it's not the way that mm-hmm. hunting's depicted, you know, coming at it from a food perspective. At least it wasn't. I think it is now. I think that perspective's growing. Um, but I immediately found it really, really fascinating. He was maybe, I think, in his second season hunting, you know, and he was self-taught um, when we started dating. And so, you know, it was just something that really piqued my curiosity. It was something that I got into with him from a, you know, food perspective. Nice. And where, where did you both grow up at, if you don't mind me asking? Um, I mostly grew up in Richmond. Uh, Wade grew up in Harrisonburg, both nice. Virginians. Sweet. So, yeah, yeah. And we've both been in Fredericksburg now for, gosh, maybe 11, 13 years. Cool. So we kind of consider ourselves Fredericksburg people, though. Nice. I uh, I spent a little bit of time up in, uh, in Yorktown uh, for some work training and ventured into sort of that, that part of the country. Yeah, Tidewater. Yeah, it's it's a neat place. Oh, it's beautiful. I I just wondering what your thoughts were of hunting before you started hunting yourself. Did, did you look at it in a negative light or was it just kind of a, a were you just kind of neutral on it? Um honestly, I, I had a, a somewhat negative um perspective on it uh, only because you know, what I did see um of hunting culture was just what's on the news. Um, and you know, like I grew up in Harrisonburg and there's a lot of, they run a lot of dogs and you just see mm-hmm. these guys standing on the side of the road. Um, you know, like I hate to use this word, but like very redneck, uh, esque. And I don't know, it just, it, it was always kind of like prickly, you know, it was like, those were not, you know, my friends, they weren't friends with my family. They were just kind of like, this is something else. And, uh, you know, I didn't ever see myself being a part of that. You know, I was like, but that was a very small subset of that. And obviously this community is a lot bigger than that. But, um, yeah, I didn't have a very, you know, positive opinion of the, uh, of hunting in general. Yeah. You know, when I was growing up, it's funny, my mom moved a couple years ago and she was going through all these old boxes of like stuff that I had drawn when I was a kid and I like real little, you know, elementary school. And I was totally an animal lover when I was a kid. I think most kids are. And Mm -hmm. I came across a drawing that I had done and it was a picture, like a child's rendering of like a, like a zoo with like a tiger in a cage and then like a man with a gun he was going to hunt. And I'd written in my like child scrawl on there that if I was president, I would make hunting illegal. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. Strong sentiment. Um, but, you know, then, of course, you know, you go through like I went through a little brief vegetarian phase in you know, high school. And I remember then, though, saying in thinking that, hey, you know, if I was to come across somebody that hunted, I would be comfortable eating that meat because, you know, being divorced from the factory farming system Mm -hmm. ethically that was something that i was comfortable with and of course like the vegetarian phase clearly didn't last very long um (laughs) but the that kind of actually forced me into considering hunting from an ethical standpoint right and so you know for a long time i had despite my earlier childhood misgivings about it um actually kind of viewed it in a positive light it was something that i thought was really interesting and um, 
I guess both now now looking back in retrospect, sort of hindsight's twenty twenty, I guess. But looking at your old self and sort of the way you thought you you um sort of how do how do you feel about the way that you perceived hunting and sort of the the collection of meat and stuff like that at, at this point? Oh gosh. I mean, I think there's a lot of naivety in general. If you're mm-hmm. not hands-on with it, I think it's really, really difficult to put together an informed opinion. And I think that, you know, we've been, as a culture, very, very uh, privileged to have the distance that we have from our food, right? Mm-hmm. Because that kind of distance spells security and it spells affluence and it spells all kinds of things. Um, but being that naive towards sourcing your own food also kind of comes with some ethical pitfalls, right? And so, you know, I don't look back on the way that I used to feel about food with any sort of judgment. Um, and I certainly don't feel that way about people who haven't gone on the journey that I have, you know. In, in looking back and sort of looking at uh, sort of the food system that we built here in the United States and people placing a lot of trust in it uh, and the evolution and pro- progress of that over time, uh, I think, too, has also led – has led to the gaps of, of things like factory farming and, and mass agriculture where people that sort of disconnect has just led us to kind of trust the system when the system may not have been so, uh, I guess, innocent or good as we thought, like not to, not to slam the farmer or not to slam the agriculturalist or anybody like that. That's not my intent. It's just like kind of to talk about the whole broad picture of like, the value of taking it into your own hands, I guess, is a way to circle back around to it. Yeah. I think, um, you had on a good point there. It's, you know, individually, none of these practices are wrong. You know, like people have to eat Mm-mm. and like Rachel said, it's a privilege to be able to, you know, purchase food and not have to have livestock and not have to have your own garden. But I think with that comes that disconnect, you know, like, we've been removed from where our food comes from as a society. Um, and that's seen as a luxury, but I think it removes us from one of the few things we actually need. And the bigger that gap becomes, the more food is just this thing that you buy and consume, not a living animal, you know, not plants, not Mm -hmm. all these microorganisms and these places, you know, whether they be agricultural fields or, you know, undisturbed natural areas, they're just these things that don't produce anything, you know, if, unless you have a connection to it. And I think just being involved with your food to any extent, even just growing some tomatoes, you know, gives you a lot of perspective on how hard it is to actually provide for yourself and how lucky we are to be able to just you know, buy whatever we want, whenever you want, or have it brought to you for that matter. Yeah. I mean, I, when I get groceries now, I, I, uh, I hit the Instacart, not to plug Instacart, but I guess, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, there's, there's a convenience in it too, uh, that's set up now. And I, I think it, the last year too, and the challenges that have been faced during, during the COVID pandemic has certainly brought about a lot of other, other industries and things surrounding the world of food that weren't previously as predominant, which is interesting too. it to include, you know, people getting back out to hunt and fish. I think it's interesting. The cycle we've, 
we are living in and moving in. But it is always people that listen enough hear me say like, I'm so happy to see positive changes, uh, you know, in, in a lot of generations to begin to start to think critically about where your food's coming from and, and sort of take that ethical question of like, is this right? Is this wrong? How does, how does the journey from, uh, you know, the field or the woods or the water to the plate look like? I'm always excited to hear people's stories, especially both of yours, as far as like to put it all the pieces together. So uh, I like it a lot. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Well, you guys want to talk about some some wild fats? Yeah. I, I, do, have, I do have an opener, so... As far as how this came about, a little bit of a backstory. So, Corey sent me a picture. Uh, Corey, when was it? When did you send me the picture? It was probably late. Fall. It was, uh, I think, first week of December. It was the first Saturday or the second Saturday of rifle season in Pennsylvania. That's when I got my last day after my birthday because my birthday was on a it was on a Friday this year, <laughs> so it was the fourth. But um, so. <laughs> It's the only reason I remember that date. <laughs> um, so he sent me this picture and it's the hind quarter of this doe that he shot. And it's like, it was a solid, I don't think I've ever seen a, a fat layer on a doe uh, like that ever before. Um, and Corey, maybe you can describe it. Obviously I'm going off a picture and you were there in person. Uh, it, so, was, it was, uh, please correct me. Is it, it was thick. It was, I mean, I've, probably close to two inches thick on, on like the, the, you know, the hind quarter, the, like the main part of the hind quarter. Wow. Oh, it was a nice, healthy doe. Two inches. I was impressed yeah. with it. So I sent Justin a picture of it. My, my first question was like, where, what has this thing been eating? So like what proximity, you know, to like food sources, obviously. Um, but two, it's like, we, we got in this big conversation about sort of what to do with the fat and, you know, you always hear a lot of stigma about uh, using uh, deer tallow or deer fat, and I know we're going to talk about it here in detail, but that sort of prompted the research. And then I don't know if it was like the the whim of the world or the way it was, but I think your guys' article hit like a day or two after that. And I was <laughs> like, holy smokes, the answers to my <laughs> questions. <laughs> So, uh, and I read it and I was like, man, my mind is blown. Uh, cause I, you know, I've rendered fats from domestic animals and stuff throughout time and duck and different things like that. But when, when you start getting into the world of other, other things, it's like, uh, it's one of those things you start to invest a lot of time in it and you're like, I don't want to mess this up. So, uh, it was good to have sort of this, this big primer on it. Um, so if, what what sort of motivated both of you to to start the process and and start the article and and we can just kind of chop through it in whatever way you guys see fit yeah i think um honestly i think the first time we rendered any deer fat um 
was a very similar situation to what Corey had. We shot a doe uh, late in the season, and um, same thing, just big, thick, fat cap on the hindquarters. And, you know, while we're breaking it down, we just kind of set it aside. And, you know, at the end, you're like, I have a gallon and a half of fat sitting here, and it's beautiful. Like, you know, like, let's, let's do something with it. You know, it seems wasteful to throw away something that, is you know so pristine you know like late season dough probably you know eating a lot of egg um had a good mass year you know like it's it looks clean and you know a lot of what we do is you know kind of not challenge but like do deep dives into like these uh, i guess common beliefs you know like you mentioned deer fat to somebody like the first two words are usually waxy and then rancid, you know, waxy. I agree with, you know, that mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. very true. Like texturally it is very, very, you know, like thick, but rancid is not, you know, a word that describes anything unless it's foul, you know, like, and I think that gets tossed around a lot. And, you know, you look up, like you said, you look up wild fats or deer fat in particular, and it's like you don't find a lot of useful information. It's just, you know, it's rancid, it's chalky, it's rancid, it's chalky, it's waxy, you know, over and over. So I think a lot of people don't try it, you know, like they never even like delve into it at all. So we rendered it out, and it looks like, you know, beef tallow. You know, there's no real difference. It's real dense. It is um, super high in saturated fats. That's why... It, it, you know, is so waxy. It's a lot like dark chocolate in that matter. And uh, we started playing around with it. And, you know, you can you can do a lot with it. You know, Rachel and I have put it through its paces. You know, like there's not much you can't do. Um, but you know, I'll let her take over that. She did a lot of the research on the composition of all these fats. Yeah, you know, with the... One thing that, you know, we kind of touch on in the article that I think is important to understand with just fats in general, whether they're wild fats or fats from domesticated animals or vegetable or seed fats, is that the composition of the fat really has a lot to do with the characteristics that, you know, are going to be applied in a culinary sense. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you're looking at your fat at room temperature, you know, you've got your canola oil or your olive oil. These are oils that are higher in unsaturated fats which makes them liquid at room temperature. Um, and these fats oftentimes have a more round mouth feel. Um, I use round, I have kind of a, I, I don't know, you know, when you, when you take a bite into like a really, really dark chocolate, like almost an unsweetened baking chocolate, it has kind of like a waxy, chalky flavor. Mm-hmm. And that's from a really high saturated fat content. And then when you get into something with a really high unsaturated fat content, it has a rounder, richer mouth feel. And so, you know, you you start looking at all these fats and you look at some of the fats that are solid at room temperature, like beef tallow or, you know, coconut oil. It's a little bit of a weird one because it's a a seed oil. Um, But, you know, you look at beef tallow, for example, that's very high in saturated fat. It's solid at room temperature. Um, These fats tend to have a higher uh, smoke point. Mm-hmm. So you can get them a lot hotter. They're great for frying um, straight proteins or for, you know, frying vegetables. You wouldn't do like a batter in it necessarily. Um, and so, you know, you start looking at just the way the fat appears at room temperature. 
And we sort of start there with our wild fats because there's not a whole lot of research on the exact composition of these different wild fats. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to run into a researcher that wants to put a little bit of time and effort and be happy to work with them to, uh, you know, really break these down. Um, but, you know, until then, you know, we just rendered out these fats and let them sit on the countertop and said, hey, how do they turn out? And, you know, that deer fat is chalkier. It's got that higher saturated fat content. You know, we've been rendering beaver fat, which is phenomenal, by the way. It's wonderful. I, yeah, I could imagine. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to, to talk about it. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, that's, that's more unsaturated. Um, and so, you know, getting into, I mean, I wouldn't call what we're doing scientific, um, <laughs> but getting into more hands-on experimentation with it, it, we've had a lot of fun with it. I like the whole, uh, we've been trying to do it a lot more too. And I, I think we're getting a lot of positive uh, response from it. Sort of kind of like the, the test kitchen idea, you know, like mm-hmm. we're, because in commonplace, and I, I find talking with a lot of people, you have groups of people in the wild game cooking world that are willing to experiment and try new things. And then you have uh, a group that's kind of in the middle that are like, we'll try new things, but somebody's have to, somebody's had to have done it before. And then you've got people that are like, I've done the same thing my entire life and I don't want to deviate and sort of, uh, I think that people from all across that board generally appreciate it. The people may not deviate from their traditional recipes, but it, they, they like learning about it. And you may snag, snag one or two out of that group. But uh, I, I think it's cool to see it because I think the reason people are kind of scared to start playing around with it is, is it, it it's people put value on it. It's a valuable commodity. It's limited resource. You can get certain times of the year and you can't get it all the time. It's not like, as we discussed earlier, going to the store and grabbing it off the shelf. Like if you mess it up, it's like time, effort, all these things went into it. And I I'm kind of trying to, I think the last month or so really harp on that and being like, play around with it. Like, I I think it's a lot game meets a lot more versatile and in some instances, not forgiving, but in some instances it, it it is forgiving. And I, I think that people should just go for it. So Yeah. You know, what's great about playing around with wild fat is that, you know, for years we would just trim all the fat off of our deer and Mm -hmm. throw it away. Like it's already a waste product. And so, you know, if we render it down and it turns out it's not that great, like the end result is we put in, you know, it's the same. There's no loss there. Um, And so that's kind of does make it really fun. You know, it's not like I'm experimenting with a tenderloin, right? Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) it's, it's something that would be going in the trash. And, you know, one thing, I always felt a little bit of guilt when we were trimming these deer or really any animal and trimming off the fat and discarding it. Because I think as hunters, we all know kind of how tenuous these animals survival really is. You know, they really work hard for every single gram of fat that they put on their bodies. And that fat is what's going to get them through the winter and, you know, through the breeding season. And then it comes to us and we're like, ah, screw it get it out of here. You know, like, <laughs> like what is up with that? Can we, you know, let, let's just see what's going on with this wild fat. Let's just give it a try. Yep. Um, I, I can see that. And thinking about there's uh, you know, there's a lot of common animals. I think people do it, do it for more commonly do it for you. Like bear. Uh, we're going to talk about that. I think in a moment, but um, I think is the one that comes to mind the most like deer doesn't i'm trying to think even wild pig um have you guys ever played around with wild pork fats or anything no we haven't um ever 
shot any or hunted any uh, feral pigs or wild pigs. Just not a just something we want to do, but just haven't done yet. You know, we don't have really a population of them around sure. here. I, I'm trying to think because, like, down here in Florida, they stay. I mean, you tend to find them. You know, you get into the southern areas, and they tend to be a, a lot leaner. Uh, in comparison, there's there are places in Florida that I know of where uh, they do produce like more fattier feral or wild hogs, but it's usually by some some human intervention that I'm not exactly a, f- a fan of. So, um, but 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 it's a uh, it, it's interesting to see and sort of kind of rank them, but. Let's uh let's let's talk more about the so when rendering deer fat is there any special steps are there any uh, unique scenarios in the from the process to the the rendering that, that people should be sort of aware of? Not really. So all the fats, basically all fats, uh, animal fats at least, render more or less the same. You're just applying you know just enough heat to liquefy the fat and not get to the smoke point where the fat's going to burn. You don't also don't want to burn any of the proteins or any of the um, impurities in there, you know, whether it be blood or, you know, little chunks of meat or silver skin that are mixed in there. So you can dry render or you can wet render. Both, you know, involve getting the fat cut into little pieces. We like uh, to freeze it and then run it through the grinder. Just gives mm-hmm. it a real nice, even... Okay. Um, surface area, like you maximize the surface area, put it in a heavy bottom pan just so the heat transfers better and either add water or not. And you heat it up and you just kind of stir it. And it's just like melting a big vat of butter kind of, you know, and there's just going to be the proteins and all the other stuff left over at the end. Um, all the fats, like I said, we render it the same way with those two methods rather. And, run it through a super fine strainer and if we're feeling up to it we'll run it while it's hot through a coffee filter or a super bag or something like that and really get all of that out and when we wet render we we particularly like to do that with like duck skin and duck fat because it's easier than scraping fat off the skin and they're kind of fused together like that we'll wet render but leave the water in there and let it cool and then you can scrape the water off the bottom after it um, separates because the fat's going to float to the top. All the impurities in the water and the gelatin are going to be on the bottom. So you basically have like a big chunk of duck espice or jello and you just separate that out. And then you can heat the fat up again and run it through a coffee filter or a super bag or whatever. But, you know, it's the same way you would do beef tallow or lard or anything else. Okay, so I'm 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 not as familiar with the wet render. Uh, I'm trying to think as far as like the process. Could you it's go a little more detail into into the steps? It. Yeah. Okay. So it's just the fat, and you're adding a bunch of water to it, and the water acts as you know, kind of a buffer. So the water is only going to get up to 212 degrees. You know. So you're not going to burn any of that fat. You know, you're kind of boiling the fat out and the fat, once it's completely rendered out, will separate as it cools from the water. So the water is going to 
sink. Well, the fat's going to all float to the top after you strain it, of course. Okay. So it's just another okay. way Got of applying now, now I'm tracking. Okay. Cool. I, I hadn't thought about that. Um, as far as for duck, like I've I've done it the, the more difficult way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we don't get me wrong. We've so, burned a lot of a uh, lot yeah. of stuff. Yeah, we've we've burned a lot of stuff. <laughs> Is there a, a time limit to freezing the fat? And that, that's one reason why I don't. I, I didn't in this particular case on that last dough was you know I, I'm processing my deer. I don't have time to deal with the fat. You know, you, you mentioned putting it in the freezer and then grinding it. Is there a time limit that you can freeze it? Because I've heard that that like bear fat can go rancid if it's frozen for too long. Is that true? And is that the same for for deer fat and uh, duck fat, etc.? So you know, we haven't had any. Uh, we haven't rendered any of our own uh, bear fat down. Uh, our the little bit of bear fat that we have worked with was gifted to us, but deer fat like is almost identical to like, you know, beef tallow or beef fat. So it, you know, you leave some fat on a back strap or something you put in the freezer, you know, it comes out, it's usually not rancid, you know, like it's, it freezes really hard. Bear fat does, I would assume does not freeze really hard. A lot like, um, other softer fats like pork fat. Um, it doesn't freeze as well, you know, like the softer, the fats, generally speaking, like if you take them out of the freezer and they're still kind of like mushy, like they're going to spoil, you know, they just have not gotten to the point where it's going to slow that decomposition. But, you know, we, I don't think there really is a time limit on deer fat. Like I would assume we haven't tested this theory, but it would be as long as the meat, you know, if you can keep, you know, the meat, in the freezer for a year, year and a half, I'm sure the deer tallow would do, or the deer fat will be fine. And uh, once you render it, the stuff is basically um, shelf stable. You know, like it's all the liquids, all the all the water is removed, all the impurities are removed. You can just kind of leave it out um, in a dark place. You know, we've actually just started that with uh, some of the beaver fat rendering renders. You know, storing it in a closet or a cabinet you know away from light airtight container and seeing how long it'll last it should last you know a, a year or so before it starts you know smelling kind of weird um but fat's been a way of preserving food for you know millennia people have been using it in pemmican and topping off jars with it and using it as a mm-hmm. air barrier more or less because fat itself will not go bad it's just the liquids and the oxidation that you know lets it go rancid i think too and i'm I'm probably gonna speculate on a stretch on this but uh i think with the bear fat it, it, it has to do with the water content i think in the fat itself and that water uh holding those impurities sounds right in my head yeah i mean that, it sounds about so, right like yeah, you know, the think... fat that we have is the bear fat that we have in the jar is very soft. You know, like it's it looks like shortening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like pork lard. Yeah. So you know, yeah, I would I love think... to get our hands on some and you know try it out and experiment, but yeah, I think too. You know, with the the reputation of bear fat and rancidity, you know, fat carries a lot of flavor, and you know, bears are such notorious omnivores. 
And so, you know, I think that sometimes people, you know, you'll, you'll throw the bear in the freezer and you blame the fat going rancid when in fact it might've been the bear's diet. Mm -hmm. And then over time as that fat oxidizes, um, the more the fat oxidizes, the more flavor uh, it gives off. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you can you can have oxidation with, you know, obviously air contact, um, but also heat application. And so, you know, that's why, like, if you, you know, you cook up a diver duck, it stinks up the whole house. Um, you know, those are some diver ducks. Yeah, some diver ducks. We're, we're generalizing <laughs> here. Um, but, you know, it's it's that fat oxidizing in that hot pan that's bringing out those off flavors. And so I think that this reputation of fat going rancid early in the freezer especially with bear might actually have something to do with the diet, um, you know, and that diet influencing the flavor of the fat rather than the fat, like literally rotting in the freezer. Makes sense. Yep. I, I could see it. And I say, I, I'll, I'll invite this to listeners out there. If you have a, you have a lot of experience with bear fat or, or history or, or feel free to chime in, send us a note and we'll, uh, I am curious to learn more. And if you have, you know, extra uh, rendered bear fat around and you want to, provide some samples for testing uh i can provide my address <laughs> so um but yeah so uh now as we're looking at the process um what would be something that you would use deer tallow for we found that um deer tallow worked best when you know it was distributed basically into whatever you're cooking like you know taking a spoon of deer tallow you know just straight to the mouth it does not it's not a very pleasurable experience you know it's like super waxy but if you spread it out (laughs) we we know (laughs) but if you spread that fat out um and you keep it warm or you like you said distribute it evenly into something where it needs a lot of fat you know, it's, it's just this super saturated, rich fat. So like we found that baking with it is one of the best ways to use it. You know, like, especially anything that calls for, um, creaming the butter and the sugar together, like cookies, mm-hmm. uh, cornbread, biscuits, actually Rachel has been making this pie crust that is, you know, like mind blowing with like half butter, half deer tallow because they have different melting points. So you have like two different layers of lamination in the crust is like the best thing I've ever had, but it's, wow. you know, like using, you know, using its characteristics to amplify what you want to do, I think is a much, you know, is like the approach we want to take towards food. You know, like it's easy to be like, this is waxy. It doesn't taste good. It doesn't taste like beef fat, you know, when it's cooked, you know, that's fair, but there's something that can be done with it. And, I mean, we, we had so much the other year that we we made some, uh, you know, suet cakes for birds, you know, just because we had enough laying around. And it was like, this is, uh, this, this is perfect for that, too. But it also works great in frying. You know, like you put it in a deep fryer and you fry it, you use it to fry it just like beef tallow. It's super rich. It's, um, it mm-hmm. you know, it tastes like it's going to kill you, but it's tasty. <laughs> When you know it's worth it, you're like, man. Exactly. I feel I feel I feel guilty because this is so good. <laughs> um, it, it piqued my interest with the cornbread. 
I think the pie crust. Yep. I'm sold on, uh, the cookies. I think I'm sold on too. the cornbread. So, uh, how, how does a deer tallow cornbread compare, um, to, to a normal cornbread? Oh, it's wonderful. It really, you know, we have, we have a wonderful cornbread recipe that I absolutely cannot take credit for. Um, our good friend, Becky has been refining this cornbread recipe for probably decades and it calls for oil, you know, just liquid oil, whatever type you normally use. And so we just swapped in melted venison tallow and it, it comes out perfect every time. Ooh. It is, it's really, really a great thing. The one thing to keep in mind when you're baking with the venison tallow is if you're using it in place of butter, um, is that because the tallow is harder at room temperature than, you know, butter or a liquid vegetable oil, when your baked good cools, it's going to be a little bit harder. So if you're making cookies, underbake them just a little bit. Um, and same with the cornbread, you know, you just want to underbake it just a touch because once it cools down to room temp, it'll be perfect. That's a great tip. Yeah. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought of that, but now that you brought it up, that's yeah, that's on my radar. And I'm looking at the cornbread recipe and like you say in there, you didn't just put in a little bit of tallow. You swapped out all of the oil with the deer tallow. Yep. Yep. We try to do that when we can. You know, I, I don't think it's cheating to be like, okay, here's a tablespoon, right? You know, I think that when we can, we try to use as much wild fat as we can, especially in these baked goods, because we really want to prove how versatile they are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't think that you're proving anything by throwing in a teaspoon or a tablespoon. So we kind of, we go full bore and then we'll dial it back if we have to. I think, man, it's cool. I'm sorry. I'm like totally nerding out on all of this. So (laughs) I don't guess I have to apologize, but, (laughs) um, so we talked a little bit about the, on the, the waterfowl side, as far as the different rendering process. Uh, and I've had, you know, I've had, and I've rendered, uh, domestic, waterfowl so duck fat but um as far as differences in in uh, wild waterfowl as far as what what you guys see any any major stuff in in the the composition and the process or the flavor um i think with duck fat you know it's that is such a comp not common but like readily accepted like premium ingredient you know like duck fat everything is tasty but with wild waterfowl, mm-hmm. I think the only thing is you just, you know, like ducks are individual animals and some of them like, you know, eating SAV and some of them like eating crawfish and snails and whatnot. So you just have to kind of sort them out and uh, you get a really fishy duck. You know, I wouldn't render that one and mix it in with like a corn fed mallard. Um, we're lucky we shoot a lot of... Well, most years we shoot a lot of geese over ag fields and wintering grounds and they have thick white creamy chunks of fat in them and you know that that renders out just as clean as any duck fat you can buy you know at a restaurant or you know from a purveyor and um it really just comes down to that you just you know rachel touched on the oxidation you know like as you apply heat to these fats they they'll sh- they'll let you know what they're going to smell like and taste like. And with duck fat in particular, you can just a lot of times look at it, you know, the darker reddish orange it is, the more keratins in there, which means it's been eating shellfish. Um, The whiter it is means, you know, the more like just clean 
high protein, high calorie, um, kind of egg kind of stuff that's been eating, you know, like, you know, you get that kind of yellow in the middle, you know, it could go either way. Like we've, we've rendered down some black ducks that have very, very dark yellow fat. That's super clean tasting. Um, but we've also rendered down some, uh, some ducks with dark yellow fat that, you know, were very fishy. So, you know, you can, you can Surprise. visually tell a lot. Yeah, exactly. You can visually tell a lot. And then, you know, if you need a double check, just apply a little bit of heat to it and you'll know, you know, you can trust your nose. Like if it's a fishy fat, you're going to, you're going to smell it like immediately. And what, uh, do you guys keep, keep the, the fishier fat or just kind of, kind of discard or it's still an experimental stage? Um, like if it's real fishy, we don't, we don't, you know, add it to the rendering pile. It's just, those birds, as we're cleaning them, you know, you can kind of tell uh, most of the time. And a lot of those birds get skinned just because I want the you know the mm-hmm. fat off of all of it. So, you know, just one more, like, step in that, you know, like, kind of, like, sorting process. Like, these birds are clean. These birds aren't. You know, and you just process them in different ways. Nice. Corey, you, you went through a... Uh... A, a similar process. What what did you shoot this year? Was it a merganser? Yeah, it was a merganser. I mean, you didn't you didn't render the fat. That's I should be yeah. clear on that. But yeah, because you and I had a good discussion uh, as far as like the the fishiness or the the flavor that was going to be present. Um, what was sort of your result? I, I just breasted it out and uh, made sure to get all the skin and fat away. And then I did the country fried merganser, so that's uh, I think frying it hides a lot of those flavors too. So it, it tasted good to me. <laughs> <laughs> what, did did you take note of what color the fat was? Because now I'm curious. Now I want to think back to all the ducks I've cleaned. That's a good question. I think it was more yellow. So it was a surprise duck. We don't know. We don't know the flavor. <laughs> no straight up indicators yet. All right. I'm a. I, I'm really curious. So the the duck fat shad row. I don't think I've had shad row before. Um, could you could you guys tell me a little more about that? And as far as like how the duck fat complements it, because I think it's it's pretty cool. Shad shad row is the um you know the the egg sac in a shad, which is a river herring. Mm-hmm. They're um you know they'll make the run up the uh, rivers here in Virginia. You know, I guess. Uh, Late March, early April, mid-April, May, some, um, depends on the, you know, the weather and whatnot, but they're, um, you know, if you like eating fish roe or caviar, it's not quite like caviar, but it's a big sack of fish eggs, and it's a pretty traditional thing in this, uh, this region to get to the fall line, and that's where, you know, they kind of bottlenecks them up, and you can catch a lot of them, um, there's a lot of regulations on river herring, et cetera, but we keep a couple every year and the traditional way of cooking it is frying it in bacon fat. Um, that's, you know, that's just been like a big thing, uh, in this region. So frying it in duck fat, you know, seem fitting and, uh, duck fat, you know, like anybody's ever worked with it, you know, it's just delicious. You know, it's just like, it's perfect cooking fat. You know, it's, mild it's got good like deep richness to it without being waxy or chalky and Mm -hmm. um 
you know, it takes heat pretty well, you know, like duck fat fried, everything tastes good. So it just, you know, we end with the waterfowl season generally every year. And then, um, you know, the next big thing we do before we got into trapping would have been like the shad run, you know, it's kind of like there's a lull and kind of tying those two seasons together. Oh man, you hit the segue perfect. That was like the perfect segue into, uh, talking about, uh, about beaver. Um, because I am excited to talk about the, the beaver, um, (laughs) compositions. Um, so you guys recently got into trapping, uh, which is awesome. Uh, is there a lot of people trapping in your, your area of the, of the world? No, we just met our other like first trapper ever out in the woods a couple of days ago. We were out at the WMA and we actually ran into somebody else about our age, actually, who was out there trapping and it was his first season. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is, I think, our third. Um, and so it was kind of cool, but that's the only person we've ever run into. Now, do you feel there's uh, there's a competition? Now yeah, you got to take him out. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> um. So looking at, uh, obviously, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever eaten beaver. Nope, I have not. Uh, I've heard a lot of really great recipes for it uh, as far as like, you know, traditional ones, roasting the tail, all those, you know, kind of uh, standard ones you hear people talk about. But uh, one, first off, what's, what's the favorite preparation you guys have outside of, we'll step outside of the the wild fat realm for a little bit and just sort of what's the a favorite recipe that, that you guys are enjoying? Um, yeah, I, the prosciutto. I think, no, the prosciutto is pretty, uh, pretty mind blowing. So we salt cured or dry cured a, um, a pair of beaver hams and put them in the curing chamber. And wow. the plan was a year. Uh, we pulled the first one after like three months, tried it. And it was, really good so it didn't go back in but this last one we <laughs> just pulled out last week and it had been in there you know 366 days i think you know we scraped off uh we had a strudo on the outside to keep it from drying because there's not you know the, mm-hmm. not like a traditional ham where there's skin and fat so we had to add fat to the outside to keep it from over drying but i'm not gonna, i mean honestly it tastes kind of like emberico like it is this dark rich red meat um it's got a little bit of the beaver fat still on it so it has that kind of silkiness um it's good i mean it'll i'll i'll put that up next to any any ham you can buy um you know it's not pork you know it's not but that depth that you get from dry aging something a year is you know not you can't simulate that any other way it's just like it's just it's just purely that animal, like distilled, like with like a 40 or 50% weight loss or something, maybe a little less than that, but it was like concentrating the flavor, but adding a lot more, uh, it's like robust, pleasurable taste to it in a way. Yeah. I mean, it's like dry, dry curing something is kind of like extreme dry aging, you know, from meat, you know, like, Mm-hmm. Beef does well after like two weeks in a uh, you know in an aging scenario, 
you know, you can take it as far as a month, two months, maybe three, and it just just keeps shrinking, and you got to keep trimming the outside off. You know, it gets more of a rind on it. But you know, you imagine doing that for a year. You know, you end up with a frisola, basically. You know, like it's just all the flavors in that meat are just going to be concentrated in a smaller and smaller area. Um, and I think that's why we love it so much. Is like we like eating beaver meat because it's just really good and you know getting all those like nuance and like woodsy and just kind of subtle flavors kind of like concentrated really shows how good of a a good of a product it is you know it's just like this perfect protein in our minds i like it it sounds it sounds awesome i don't know if i could make it the full year I would want to pull it out of the of the curing chamber and eat it, <laughs> especially if, if the first one was that delicious. I'd be like, I don't know, yeah. I don't know. It was tough, and we had a lot of people asking us about it too. They'd be like, "Have you cracked into that ham yet?" We'd have to be like, "No, we're still waiting." <laughs> yeah. It was it was wrong. hard. We started four more after we pulled the first one. So. Yeah, we've got a lot of beaver hams now. That's awesome. <laughs> um. Well, so now g- going back to the to the rendering of, of beaver fat, uh, any special any special deviation from from sort of the others we've talked about? Uh, same process, you know. Beaver beavers have a lot of fat on them, you know, and it's actually you know, it just comes off just like um, you know any other fat that's kind of focused on the outside, just big chunks of it off the uh, hindquarters around the belly area and the back yeah. area just like a deer yeah. yeah uh utilize any off the tail or get into sort of that you can we haven't done that yet we uh we have a big stack of them in the freezer right now but in years past we skinned the tails and we cured those whole we did like beaver tail lardo uh, we'll probably do a few more oh, wow. of those but we because we had a lot of tails you know that's you know, it's mostly fat and, uh, you know, gristle and connective tissue. So those would render down really nicely if we, um, needed to do that. But I kind of like playing with it as like a whole muscle. Cool. As far as recipes, I I see the ones Corey selected. Let me go back to the original article here. Uh, we're also baking as well. Um, and then sort of mixing that in. Oh yeah. There's the beaver tail lardo. Oh, that looks great. Yeah, that's some wild stuff. So cool. So looking at it, it's sort of wrapping it into uh, the baking side of the house too. Um, how do you feel it compares to, to using the the deer tallow or venison tallow? Like what's, what's the major differences? It's a lot softer. Um, you know, it's more unsaturated. Um, you know, it's basically liquid at room temperature. Um, you know, we use it a lot in cakes and things like mm-hmm. that. Um, it was in the dinner rolls we had tonight for dinner. Um, you know, it, it's really versatile. It's something that, you know, you can really use anywhere. You know, with the deer tallow, there is kind of that consideration that you have to have of the distribution, right? Like, I would never make a, like, venison tallow buttercream frosting, right? It's just hmm. like, there's too much. It would be too chalky. Um, but, you know, with the beaver fat... It's so mild. It's so versatile. Um, I would use it really anywhere that you could use duck fat. If you see a recipe that's calling for duck fat or like, especially in baked goods, instead of olive oil, 
you know, um, I did a ginger cake recently with the beaver fat. Um, so anywhere that would call for olive oil, definitely it shines there. Um, would yeah. you fry in it or use it as like a, to saute or anything? Do you think it would be added value to the, the dish? Absolutely. I think it's, you know, probably the most versatile fat um, that we have in abundance. You know, I, you can, you can do use it for anything like just, you know, putting in a pan, sauteing, searing, you could probably fry it. We haven't tried that yet. Um, yeah, I think this the- year we'll finally have enough to like deep fry in it. Ooh, so yeah, nice. awesome. <laughs> let, let us know but, how uh, it turns out. I'll, I'll be I'll be yeah. watching eagerly. <laughs> you know, we, I just had an idea. We should uh, render down a couple of those tails and then shave them and then um, dehydrate them and then fry them again to make a beaver tail. With oh, like cracklings. Oh, okay. Oh my god, that's gosh. a great idea. That's a brilliant idea. I'm digging that because everybody's so into talking about like anytime you talk about eating beaver, they're like, oh, I heard mountain men eat the tails. Like that's everybody's piece of trivia about beavers. And we've eaten, you know, just kind of tried roasting them. And it, it, I would certainly rather eat that than starve to death. Mm -hmm. Um, But like just the open fire crackling off the skin kind of thing, not super delicious. And so we're always trying to find ways to use the tails that are, it's like a little bit more palatable. Yeah. Uh, because if your first impression of eating beaver is that, you're probably not going to go back. Holy So smokes. I love the crackling idea. That's a brilliant idea. Oh, yeah. We're going to do that. All right. Well, definitely please let us know how that goes. Yeah, we'll keep everybody posted. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, man, we we talked a little bit about uh, uh, as far as bear. So um, I, I don't want to dig too much into that because I think – uh, we chatted about that and we hit the high, the high point that I wanted to sort of discuss was that was like the, the idea of rancid fat and not, but definitely using that for desserts too. I'm curious. So big news. I just drew an Oregon bear tag today. Literally just, I found Congrats. out, I found out like six hours ago. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, me and one, two, three, four, there's four of us all, um, Two, two live in Oregon, and then two are going to travel from Oklahoma. Not me. Sorry, Corey. Aww. Somebody has to keep somebody has to keep the ship sailing straight, Corey, and that's you, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, <laughs> I lost my train of thought. <laughs> anyway, we're going to go out there, but uh, I'm excited because we were talking uh, sort of logistics and timing and stuff, and it's going to be uh, first part of May. And uh, the black, they're saying blackberries should be out. Like the bears are starting to like roll out of hibernation and full force. Berries are coming out. And like what a great combination from a culinary aspect to try to take a bear uh, that's been gorging itself on blackberries. So That sounds like it's going to be awesome. Yeah, I will. You got to come back with some berries too and make a little cobbler. That's totally my plan i was like i got a we have a great recipe on, on the website because i was gifted some bear meat a while back and i did a it was alaska bear so it was a blueberry blueberry eating bear it's a mouthful but um and i did like a, a blueberry barbecue sauce and that's like nice. oh, i love that recipe but um that's awesome yeah so i i, I want to try to do something similar with the blackberry too but i like now the the idea of using the fat for a cobbler 
uh, and then incorporating the the blackberries. So that's that's going to be on my radar as well. So thanks for that. That's a good idea. <laughs> See, look at this. Look at this. This is a productive podcast, even for us. It's not it's a meeting of the mind, right? It's not about the listener anymore. You guys can turn the podcast <laughs> off. We're just going to keep going. Thanks. <laughs> so. Um, well, I, I'm going to pose this question to the listeners first and sort of see uh, outside what we've talked about. I'm curious to hear about your experiences working with other types of game fats or even the, the game fats we've talked about today. And then I'm going to bounce this question over to both of you. Uh, any any fats you've worked with outside of uh, what we've talked about today already? Um, I think... Maybe the only other one would be like turkey, and mm-hmm. you know it's too it's what you would expect. You know, it tastes like chicken fat and turkey fat. You know, it's delicious. You know, it's uh, we don't render a lot of it just because there's um, you know not a whole lot on the tom in the spring, but we we always pluck our turkeys. So we leave them skin on. And we try to leave that fat as intact as possible because it helps. You know when you're roasting a breast or smoking it or whatever, we like having all that kind of like fats basting itself. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think fats are a very, uh, interesting subject in general. And, uh, you know, we think about it a lot in all of our proteins, like, you know, even the fish, you know, we don't render it out separately, but, we treat like a cobia belly a little differently than like a cobia fillet because of the fat content. And, you know, we've actually noticed that the bellies don't keep as long in the freezer as the, you know, fillets from the top loin. And just like these things that, I don't know, I, I, now that we've like asked or started asking questions about fat it's like, now it's like, what else, you know, like we're just constantly prying into it a little more and more and more. The, um, I mean, the, the, there's no limit. <laughs> it's yeah. any animal that's got fat. Yep. Yep. So we're going to, we're going to keep poking around within the topic. You know, the, the wild fat piece that we have up on the website is it's a work in progress. Um, you know, you'll see our bear section is pretty abbreviated right now because we just haven't had a lot of opportunity to hunt bears. Um, but, you know, as we experiment with stuff, we'll be, you know, adding on to that section of the website. Um, and, you know, if anybody's got any great ideas they want to submit, you can always reach out. Um, you know, anybody that's saying, hey, you know, maybe otter fat is great. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I'd be keen to try it. So, you know, we'll definitely be uh, exploring a little bit more into the wild fat territory for sure. Boom. That's a perfect segue, too, because that was <laughs> what I was going to ask next. What's the best way for uh, for people to reach out and get in contact with uh, with both of you? Oh, uh, we're mostly on Instagram, uh, handles Elevated Wild. Uh, we're also on Facebook, um, and our website is elevatedwild.com. Awesome. And, um, yeah, definitely head over to social media. Check out the website. I I love your guys' website. It's so beautifully laid out. I think Thank that's you. the second time I've said that, but um, it's really awesome. So uh, this sort of is the, the point of the show where we're going to start running out of time. So we always give uh, everyone the opportunity to throw in a last thought or a uh, misfire, alibi, whatever whatever you sort of have. And um, I'll, I'll 
offer it up to uh, to you both first, being the guest. Uh, so to make it easier, uh, Wade, can you give me your uh, any last thought that you may have for us or for the guest or whatever? Um, well, I just want to thank you for having us. You know, it was great having this chat. You know, I'm sure we bounce. I've got some ideas rolling in my head, and I'm sure you do too. You know, it's like love getting together with people mm-hmm. that love to nerd out about food and ask questions and, you know, keep pushing the limit a little bit. Because I think that's ultimately what Rachel and I, why we started doing, you know, Elevated Wild is, you know, Wild Game is so incredible. And for a long time, the only recipes I saw were, you know, cream of mushroom soup in a crock pot and marinated and Sprite or Coke and or wrap it in bacon. You know, it's like, why go through all this effort? Yep. You know, to do all these things and take this beautiful protein and make it taste like bacon. And there's nothing wrong with that. Bacon is delicious. You know, like, I'm not going to deny that. But there's so much more that can be done. And, you know, hunting culture, like I said, I I had a fairly negative opinion on it because it didn't – it just looked like killing. You know, it didn't look like food. And the food I did see didn't look very good. So it didn't make any sense to me. But if the food looks really good and it tastes really good, everybody's interested. You know, like it's it's the end product of everything. You know, it's like everything you work for when you're hunting, it comes down to like this protein or this dish. And if you, you know, you, you make something really good that you're really proud of that people can – I feel like people can feel that and they can, they can appreciate that and they can connect with you even if they don't hunt. You know, like we live on a street and there's not a single person that, uh, in our, I would say when it's on a mile that hunts, but you know, we like bringing them some venison, bringing them some sausage, you know, sharing what we have and they, uh, they seem to be okay with us. Awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah, I, I agree with that completely. That's thanks for sharing that. Um, thought Rachel, uh, any, any last thoughts for us? Oh gosh, Wade covered so much. I don't know what else to add <laughs> on top of it other than that, you know, Hey, it's been a pleasure being on. Uh, this has been a really fun chat. I'm glad that we got to do this. Thank you. Thank um, you both. And then, you know, as far as final thoughts, you know, I guess one thing that I would love for more people to take away with their wild game cooking is just to experiment, um, you know, to go outside of maybe what you've been told that you can do. Um, you know, one thing that we found with all of our wild game cooking is just the versatility. You know, if you treat it right and, you know, you go in and you go in thinking while you're cooking, you can really achieve some cool stuff. And, you know, I don't know how many other people are out there trapping beaver, but if you are, you know, start rendering the fat, throw it everywhere. I mean, you can put it in anything. Um, I really think that people would be surprised to see how versatile their wild game fats are. I think that once people start experimenting with it, they're going to really look back on all those years that they were throwing it away and mm-hmm. uh, really be like, man, what was I doing? Absolutely. Awesome. Well, yes, I, I agree with that for sure. Uh, Corey, what do you got? I just want to thank Wade and Rachel for coming on. That's been Awesome talking to you, and you know I'm a lifelong hunter, and uh, my dad wasn't much of a cook, so I was eating the, you know, 
the deer, the venison with cream of mushroom in the crock pot and marinated in Italian dressing, dressing when I grew up. And it's people like you and Justin and, you know, the, you know, the more, the great wild game cooks that are out there now that we have the resources like these that I've been able to expand, you know, my wild game cooking and, you know, thank you for coming on, sharing, sharing your knowledge uh, with everybody. It's been awesome. Well, thank you guys. We had a great time. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, I, I will echo what Corey says and, and, and saying it was absolute, uh, it was awesome having you guys on. You saw, you got to see me in rare form nerding out about food, which is normally just when I'm like writing on the computer in the kitchen. So, um, it's, uh, it's a a special moment, I think. Um, but no, uh, it, it was great. And we, we hit so much, I think useful information as far as talking about, uh, the wild fats and and i appreciate you guys sharing your insights and and really opening up about it and i look forward to seeing the the developments you know uh what both what we talked about and and whatever you guys get into uh got a lifelong fan here lifelong fan first time caller uh but (laughs) (laughs) um, so uh definitely really excited so thanks again uh for coming on and thank everybody out there for listening uh, as Corey mentioned in the first of the show, check out that Facebook community group uh, where we can have also have awesome conversations like this. And you can pick my brain. I can pick your brain. We can come up with some cool wild game stuff. And uh, be sure to head over to all the social media platforms and follow Elevated Wild. After you do that, head over to uh, to our profiles. Make sure you check those subscribe buttons for us too. And then, uh, as always, show notes will be online whatever podcast platform you're listening to punch that five star button and tell us what we're doing wrong or tell us what we're doing right. It's up to you. Thanks everybody. And have a good night. A life that has the stories to back it, a life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. I'll be over there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.